Malole Soifua, you're tuned into Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up on our show. Once they pull their water, they need to keep it in a water storage container. Ever thought about life without clean, safe water? That's the current reality for Kiribati also. This is a new generation. We all understand that we're moving forward and we forgive people. We don't hold grudges against each other. The New Zealand government delivers on one of its promises to heal the hurts from the dawn raids, and later on... If you think of marine invasive species, it's not a very sexy topic. Definitely isn't, but these species can be dangerous, which we'll find out soon. March 22nd marks World Water Day, focusing on creating change to solve the water and sanitation crisis. It's a crisis that Kiribati is all too familiar with. The country is faced with immense pressure to deliver safe drinking water in the midst of a severe drought. Child Fund Kiribati Programs Director and Resident David Kakiakia is from the northernmost island, Makian, and he knows the challenges people face firsthand. He spoke with RNZ Pacific's Lydia Lewis. In Kiribati, we are currently in a drought period a little level number three how long has that drought been going on for um i look at the website it says from 2016 um how significant is that not really affected us but for me this one is one of the worst drought how does kiribati get drinking water to begin with and what is the status of that drinking water if we talk about the outer island we rely on the crown water with the main island which how fun work and where the majority of the population are at the moment like nearly 50% of the population the total population of Caribbean live on the main island rely on groundwater there's a government pipe system that we rely on and now that we are in the late level number three meaning the pipe system the water that we will receive from the pipe system the government pipe system will be controlled and we will um, experience the limited number of water. Can you please explain to me what the World Health Organization deems as an acceptable level of E. coli and what some of your tests have come back as? Plus one E. coli or coliform presence in the water, you need to treat it. Meaning our only purification method in Caribbean is boil, just boil or use solar disinfection. And what were some of the tests coming back as? Were they at plus one or...? There were some also that the result was around like seven, plus seven, there's like plus 12, yeah, meaning the contamination of their water was high back then. And for our listeners who do need to know this information, what are three basic steps that you would like people to know and how should they treat and handle their water? Uh, first of all, like for us to be in line with the um, government messaging, they have to boil, boil, boil their water, use sort of disinfection. So that's really the first priority message messaging that the government wanting us to um, Who share. should do this? Is, does everybody need to do this? Everybody in Kiribati, like every household. But I think if we talk about household, uh, there's a level of responsibility for someone, an adult in the household, to teach their younger ones, younger ones. And that's where we come in. 
um, child fund, making sure that um, there's a conversation happening in the household also, making sure that the other member of the family members know how to um, follow all those instructions and guidelines, I think. Yeah, so once they've boiled the water, what, what other steps do they need to take? So once they boil their water, they need to keep it in a clean water storage container. Before taking a water from that water container, they have to make sure that the cup they use to put it to tip inside the um, the clean drinking water is cleaned. Otherwise, it will lead the contamination into the um, clean drinking um, container. If you know what I mean. That is a lot of work. Hmm. For clean water. We're here in New Zealand and I just gave you a glass of water. Mm. Can you explain to our New Zealand listeners how this impacts everyday life? Um, <clears throat> um, people living on the outer island, if with our current situation of a drought period, there's um, villages that are impacted and their groundwater salinity is high, meaning they can't drink their groundwater. Um, they had to go to the other village to fetch their water. And there's one reason why we wanted to support the outer island as well by installing the uh, Moasol water distillation on the outer island. How far are people going to get water at the moment? It depends. Let's say where I was grew up, where I was born and grew up. Where was um, that? Um, There's the furthest no. Um, There's the first island in the northern region of Kiribati. I had to walk. Let's say when I was a kid, I had to walk to that place to catch um, a water. Um, it took me about um, thirty minutes, sometimes twenty minutes, walking to walk from where I lived to that place. There's only one where water that the entire village members relying on. It's been 50 years since the dawn raids, a rigorous enforcement carried out by the New Zealand police to search for overstayers, mainly targeting Pacific. The raids ended in 1979, but it wasn't until 2021 that the Pacific community received an official apology from the New Zealand government. Since then, the government has set up initiatives as part of their long-term reconciliation efforts of the dawn raids. Jan Kohut has a story on one of those initiatives. On the 1st of August 2021, former Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern announced that the New Zealand government would provide resources to teach dawn raids in schools and invest 1.3 million US dollars towards academic vocational scholarships for Pacific communities. This year, 28 young Pacific leaders from four Pacific nations have been chosen for He Manawatiti Scholarship Program 2023 to build knowledge and skills. The scholarship recipients hail from Fiji, Samoa, Tonga and Tuvalu. However, is this enough and could the New Zealand government do better? Successful applicants Laitia Fifita from Tonga says the New Zealand government has been doing its best. I think the, the New Zealand government is doing uh, already a huge amount of work 
in different aspects, uh, in social, uh, economic development, in, in so many diverse areas in our Pacific countries. And uh, the aid, the funds uh, that we received from the recent Hunga Tonga Hunga by volcanic eruptions. Many of the recipients are already serving their own community and say that the scholarship program will help build on their knowledge and capabilities that will benefit their home country. Entrepreneur Tika Edmonds says she will implement what she learnt into her business in Suva, Fiji. Uh, I am an entrepreneur back in Fiji. Yeah, I run a home-based business in uh, Suva and uh, it's such an eye-opener because we are all leaders in our respective backgrounds and the line of work where we came from. Understanding this, it plays a big role into into growing our knowledge and, and, and upskilling ourselves. For some recipients, the Dawn Raid's apology was emotionally triggering, but it was a step into the right direction. Samoan recipient Teresa Henrietta Wolf reflects on what the Dawn Raids meant to her. You know, us back in Samoa, we have that um, tradition of forgiving. The, our traditional e-fonga, uh, the way you apologise when you do something wrong. So, but, you know, this is a new generation. We all understand that we're moving forward and we forgive before. We don't hold grudges against um, each other. Ocean conservation and science organisation Blue Cradle says marine invasive species are an ecological and economic threat to Pacific nations. The organisation's founder, James Nikitin, says species like algae and worms hitch rides on the hauls of ships and invade local ecosystems. The organisation has conducted two workshops within the last year in Auckland and French Polynesia on the issue. Mr Nicotine speaks with Caleb Fotheringham. Marine invasive species are a little unknown or lesser known amongst the issues around the world affecting our ocean. And so when you think of shipping, over 90% of the ships globally are carrying our, our goods and services, our everyday you know, desires through containers. And so those ships can be vectors of a marine invasive species through their ballast waters and on their hulls. And also recreational sailing and boating can actually be vectors. I guess a small uh, shell, a mollusk, a worm or an algae can actually penetrate these ballast waters or aggregate on the hulls of ships. And so they can travel around the world and actually invade your local ecosystem and have severe consequences. It's definitely something that you don't think about much. You think about invasive species on land. Can you give me some examples of some of these invasive species? So in New Zealand, we've got two invasive species that are being uh, looked at. One is called Sabella spallanzani. And so Sabella, so known as the Mediterranean fanworm, was first uh, diagnosed in the, in the country in the mid-2000s. And so since has been spreading north and south on both islands. It's understood to have come from the Mediterranean, so it's a Mediterranean fanworm that's spreading and it's basically found in, you know, under the structures of wharfs and all over Northland and also in, uh, in Littleton Harbour and places like that. So that's one example of a, of a worm that's not supposed to be here, but it's actually um, proliferating quite significantly in New Zealand waters on the coastlines. And so another, for, uh, for example, is an algae um, known as Undaria. And so Undaria is similarly proliferating. It's an Asian seaweed. Councils, you know, the Ministry of Primary Industries and, and regional councils and, and, and Iwi and Hapu, they're working together to, you know, manage these invasive species that are coming, entering from foreign ships throughout the country. But there, there are others. And so I guess the, the big question is, what are the others that may enter 
in the future and how can we mitigate and control and have strategies in place to actually protect our native uh, marine ecosystems and species. What about in the Pacific and the Pacific Island nations? Are they suffering from some of these marine invasive species as well? Yeah, so the the workshop that we were leading in September and, and March of this year was sponsored by the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Fonds Pacifique, which is a Pacific-wide fund designed to support climate, environmental, and social ecological projects across the South Pacific. So we formed a partnership with the CRIOB in French Polynesia, Tahiti, uh, on the back of research projects that had been done between New Zealand and French Polynesia, between the Corthron Institute and the CRIOB, and the University of French Polynesia. And so the research was looking at invasive species in ports and marinas, in the marinas of Papete and Punauia, which is on the western coast of the main island of Tahiti. And so what they found is that through molecular sampling, they, they found some presence of foreign species. And so when we were there last year, we found South African, for example, shells, oysters, actually, that were present there and were actually proliferating slowly. So there are definitely entering these countries from foreign places. And so our role is to get the data, support the research that's necessary to understand where are these species coming from and how are they proliferating and how they're multiplying and potentially taking over before that happens and, and actually has drastic consequences on the native ecosystems and the economies that depend on, on them. So is the situation getting worse? Well, I think it's a little known issue. And I think if you think of marine invasive species, it's not a very sexy topic. We made a short documentary called Unwanted Passengers to just give a sense of how important the issue is and how widespread it is. If you think of the Caribbean and the lionfish, for example, the lionfish uh, is kind of a, an iconic example of, a, of an Indo-Pacific species that's settled in the Caribbean. And the strategy there is, is part of the economy. So they've actually taken one step further. And you can go in the Caribbean islands now and you can fish this fish and it's, it's poisonous, so you have to get rid of the spikes. And once you've done that, you can use it as a, as a food, you can use it as a, as a jewelry item. And so they, they've moved further in the, in the sense that they've adapted fully to the ecosystem and also to the socioeconomic ecosystem, um, yeah, might I say. So I guess our strategy in the South Pacific will need to somehow potentially integrate some of those economic opportunities. If you think of uh, Undario, it's a seaweed. So if it's settled and it's already there, are there ways that we can use these seaweeds uh, for, for our own consumption? Potentially it's an edible seaweed, or could we use them for alternative materials? I think this conversation is still at its early stage here in New Zealand. I think there are opportunities to think about that in those terms, but I think we should be a lot more proactive in identifying and also cautious, because if we start encouraging these species, then the whole conversation moves towards an economic one. We don't want to go down that route either. But I guess for the South Pacific and particularly for French Polynesia and the Cook Islands and Fiji, where, where our work is looking at is, is the pearl farming industry and also fisheries, artisanal fisheries and aquaculture. They're on the first line in terms of the, the consequences and impacts. So if you want to be extra cautious, the, the strategy there is to really think about, well, how do we prevent these species from entering our waters in the first place. That's the first thing. And the second thing is then, how do we collect the data and how do we identify the gaps in order to make the right decision? 
That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs or download for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team that made this episode a great one yet, so far so far.